Hi, welcome to Exit Point. This is Laurent Frat, and with me is Matt Blank. And today we're going to be speaking with Scotty Bob. Scotty Bob is quite the character in our crazy base jumping community, but he's also one of the most well-versed base jumpers out there. From slider down to terrain flying to tracking, you name it, and Scotty Bob's done it. Matt, tell the listeners, where are we going to take this conversation today? We're going to take this conversation all over the map, and where we're going to start is Brazil, where Scotty Bob and his wife Julia are teaching one of the most sought-after base courses out there. We're going to want to know everything about this course, what they're doing, what the scenery is like, what Brazil is like, and then we're going to want to talk to them about progression. Not just the progression that's required of a skydiver wanting to get to wingsuit base jumping, but also Scotty Bob's personal progression from being, you know, back in the day, a person that had his number on the BFL reserved to now being recommended by basically everybody out there as a premier base instructor. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he used to be that guy on the couch, the hobo base jumper. And now he owns a couch and he's going to be a dad. So diving into his own personal progression will be interesting. You know, and besides that, what can students do to prepare to be, you know, get the most out of day one with Base with the Bobs? Also, you know, he's uh, come a long way with uh, communication. You know, one of the most difficult things about base jumping is communicating with your friends about making bad decisions. And Scotty Bob has been quite vocal in the past about people doing stupid stuff. Oh, yeah, man. Interestingly enough, he's one of the few people that has said, hey, man, if you do that, you're going to die. And then the person actually dies directly after that statement. And that's happened on multiple occasions to him. So like, we're going to have to get his perspective on the culture, his perspective on, you know, bad decision making and, and communication. Absolutely. I also want to delve into uh, where he thinks the sport is going and if he thinks it's trending in a you know positive direction. Yeah, we got a lot to cover with Scotty. So with that, let's welcome Scotty to the podcast. Scotty Bob, welcome to Exit Point. How's it going? Good. So basically the whole deal here and what we're trying to accomplish is, I don't know if you remember a few years back when we were doing the next level uh coaches course and uh, we all had tons of energy and we were sitting down at the bar and we were like how can we contribute like every one of us has our own little skills and has our little you know ways that we could support the community and this is it you know it, it's a little bit difficult to get everybody to sit down and write a book so it's a little bit easier to get everybody to sit down and talk to us on the podcast so here we are hell yeah man it's 2021 let's do this all right, so we've got some questions, and um, Matt's going to start off with uh, with one of the first ones, and uh, yeah, here we go. Yeah, I feel like I've got to say this one in kind of a marketing tone of voice. Scotty Bob, you've started one of the most exciting and sought-after courses being offered in our sport today. Give us a rundown on what you're offering and a taste of the jumps you're all executing. <laughs> you're, you're too good at that, man. <laughs> <laughs> No, but seriously, uh, your course is like gaining a lot of traction. Like, give us a rundown, dude. What's up? Yeah, we're we're pretty stoked with it. It's it's been kind of a, a fruit of some labor over the last, I guess, half year now. Um, I actually didn't quite believe Julian at. Uh, well, I'd seen a lot of Brazilian base jumpers that are like really, really talented at slider up, and that's 
usually an indicator that they have objects that, that are pretty conducive to progression. So we went down there in January and kind of checked it out and uh, kind of developed our course loosely based off of our January trip. And we run two now um, and we're about to head down for a third. And really what the course is really gained around is try, or try to gauge it around is try to give people an introduction to slider up uh, and terminal base jumping. Uh, we do a little bit of first wingsuit base training as well. Can you give us an idea of what the day-to-day looks like on your course? Yeah, we we start uh, at probably the most forgiving slider up cliff that I can really that I've seen out there. Um, I mean, that's not actually a cave; it pretty much is a cave. Uh, we're there for like a day and a half. It's really kind of for people that have never put a slider on, never jumped off an, a, a cliff or really anything with a slider on their base rig. It's uh, it's extremely forgiving. It's not the biggest cliff out there. Uh, it definitely falls into that kind of subterminal slider up world, but as overhung as it is and as good as the landing area is, it really gives people a nice taste um, of what it feels like to not exit head high, to uh, to feel like a good delay past three seconds, and then to get a pilot shoot out with good body orientation. Nice. Um, we can get a lot of repetition at that place too. So it's really awesome. Rewind a little bit for me because I mean, I'm super attracted of coming to one of these courses too. Like, you know, I've got a few base jumps myself, but just going to Brazil with a local and someone who's been there a bunch sounds amazing. Like you land at the airport. Um, how does it, how's it unfold from there? Are you guys taking everybody together on a bus? Is you, everybody renting cars? How does, how do the logistics work out? Yeah, we, we meet up in a town called Vitoria. Um, it's not too far from, it's about a six hour drive from Rio, but like a two hour flight uh, from Sao Paulo. And we have everybody rent cars. We're, we usually only have about two or three in our caravan. And we bomb out to a town about two and a half hours from there. That's probably the closest town to that big overhung jump. Nice. What's the scenery look like out there? Like, give us, paint us a picture of Brazil and base jumping out there. Uh, it's definitely not Europe. It's, uh, it's really, <laughs> it's a lot of, a lot of green coming from Southern California. We're used to everything being brown all the time. It's, uh, it's definitely jungle. Um, lots of farms, lots of tropical fruit everywhere. It's, it's beautiful. I, uh, I've, I've been enjoying it since I've been going down there. It's amazing. Nice. And before we get into uh, more about the course, which we definitely want to delve into, I'm kind of curious to uh, ask you about your transition into instruction, because I know that you've waited a long time in order to get into it. Uh, What uh, finally motivated that shift uh, to start a course? Um, For us, for Julie and I, she actually has a little bit more background in coaching and and teaching and base swimming than I do. Um, But she's you know, the two of us together really kind of found early 2020 that it was, you know, it's a really good idea for us to get into it just because, you know, this is what we're both passionate about. And uh, we, we see a definite need these days with the sport getting bigger, more people getting into it. Um, definitely, my, I would say my transition really kind of happened more a little bit sooner mentally just with uh, just a couple of accidents with very close friends and then just seeing the way kind of the mentality in the sport in general was going. Uh, it could just use somebody along the sidelines going like, hey, there might be a better way to do things than the way things are going right now. 
Yeah, I totally hear you on that. Uh, what was it that, uh, was there anything that kept you from seeing, because uh, you've said that basically the same thing uh, for years now uh, and been, you know, still kind of just uh, on the sidelines of instruction, you know, giving what you could to our community. And then finally, now you're like, okay, I'm, I got to formalize this. So was it that like you realized that, you know, the needs that you're talking about were greater than could be accomplished without the course? Or uh, I'm also specifically like interested in, you know, what kept you from doing this earlier, basically? Um, really, <laughs> I guess getting married really was, uh, and meeting Julia was kind of having a little bit of a purpose and a goal, uh, you know, a joint goal between the two of us. It became a little less selfish, I guess, just with having her around. Um, Nice. Yeah. A good so partner on these things one. is, is uh, pretty uh, awesome to have. Like, it seems like every good uh, base instruction course has like kind of a partnership like that, like uh, Jimmy and Marta, like Dukes and Sam, like they all kind of like just cruise together and uh, um, like complimenting one another. It's uh, an interesting, uh, interesting thing. Not a whole lot of other realms do like the instruction come off as a partnership, but I think more commonly than not in base jumping, it does. Yeah, for sure. We're um, we're pretty stoked to have kind of playing around with bringing Dicto down as well as an assistant instructor. Uh, he was pretty clutch on the last one, and uh, he's coming down in October with us again. Nice. All right. Well, moving on to the course, we want to get into kind of the progression talk, and I want to start with what skills or competencies are your course focus is your course uh, is your course focusing on. Uh, one of the biggest lackings that I see, especially with American progression or American base jumpers, is uh, is slider up. Like we're uh, we have a great bridge. We got in in Idaho. We've got tons of slider down clips. Uh, but the the serious lacking that we have is slider up and terminal objects. Um, you have a lot of jumpers and just no objects. So getting people that experience on safe and forgiving objects is really important. Um, and then just kind of making people realize that traveling's the best way to do that. Like get out of the U.S., go to a place with safe and forgiving objects that you can do a lot. And uh, that's, you know, our Brazil course was really garnered around that. Is that people's first time putting a slider on their rigs is is can be really hairy. And looking at the statistics on the base fatality list, it's you know where people's usually small mistakes here and there made in the subterminal realm become fatal mistakes in the terminal environment. Yeah, it's a real juxtaposition with uh, the European community. Like uh, a lot of the people here, I would say the vast majority have done a couple of slider down or off jumps and then immediately go to the cliff and never go back. Like people that I jump with used to think I was crazy because I wanted to slider down jump a lot of these cliffs. And, um, yeah, so the American progression is much different than what's going on in Europe. Do you think that that's going to change with your students or is it just mostly slider down? Because obviously those are the objects in the U S that are, you're able to hit, you know, that are, are more uh, applicable and, and easily accessible. Or do you think that this is becoming slider up becoming more prevalent? I would say that the massive demand in the U.S., especially with um, here in Southern California, is that we have a lot of very, very current and active wingsuit skydivers, and they that 
terminal two piece tracking experience in base jumping is just seen as like a barrier or or a hurdle to just kind of hop over on your path to wingsuit base jumping. And um, I would like to think that our course is not a part of that a, a small hurdle to leap over. It's it's more of a, like an introduction to this realm and at least get their wheels, their brain turning on a lot of the stuff that they will completely overlook if they just take a first jump course at the bridge, you know, throw a wingsuit on and then just go start hopping off of stuff with a wingsuit on. It's, uh, that's where I would, our, our course is really guard is trying to get people to realize that you can do this in a safe environment and having a more, a progressed outlook on terminal base jumping rather than just getting straight into a wingsuit is a better way to do it. Well, let's talk about some of that brain work for a second, because in the pre-interview, you mentioned decision-making being one of the competencies that your course uh, kind of covers. And I'm curious for you to delve a little bit more into that. You know, how are you guys developing this decision-making? What kind of decision-making are you looking for in people? I mean, it's, that's kind of the hard one with, uh, with any, like each individual is different. And, uh, if, if they're there and they're, you know, want to make base jumping a, you know, a lifelong goal, you know, a lifelong passion, then starting off in that first slider up terminal base jumping realm, uh, in a two piece or even just slick, your, your, your decision-making is way more like it's right in your face. It's not the problem with putting a wingsuit on and with, that limited decision-making skills in the base jumping realm is that those quite often the decision that kills you is, is made, you know, seconds, if not more, you know, quite a few seconds before it actually kills you. And in the terminal tracking world, things are right in your face. You're having to make those decisions way quicker. You're typically pulling, you know, using your eyeballs to look at the ground, which is something that's brand new for a lot of people coming straight from skydiving. Um, so now we're talking more of like developing intuitive uh, action, intuitive decision making, rather than analytical. Is that where we're going? I mean, and it's definitely with both. Like, uh, if you put people in with that low experience numbers or even time in the sport in a way more safe environment, in more overhung objects, uh, better landing areas and you force them to operate in a lower performing wing, give, you give them a better chance of success to develop that decision-making skills that will pay off well into the future. Yeah, I mean, like on a personal level, wouldn't you agree? I mean, like even all the three of us sitting here, like if we had known like our longevity in the sport and that we would be doing this like for like a lifelong, as you were saying, it would have made that progression feel so much easier. I, I mean, I remember like doing my first terminal trips to like Norway. It was like, man, it felt so far away. Like I had to save so much money and I was like never sure I was going to get back there. And it just felt so like hurried and like felt like I had to get everything done because this is good. This trip was like cost so much, but like, look, shit, look at us now. Like, I mean, can't even count how many trips we've done. Like, I mean, I moved to Europe for it and, you know, now I've got cliffs in my backyard. So it's like, this isn't the case for everyone, but, you know, with trips like Brazil, that's a little bit closer with more and more terminal cliffs opening around the U.S., it it seems like, I think people can look at this as like, they don't need to be in such a hurry. Uh, What do you, what do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the bigger problems that we have in the U.S. now is that we have highly experienced wingsuit skydivers. We have objects around here that aren't beginner friendly. Uh, not, I mean, for various reasons, just just doing your first wingsuit base jump in the U.S. in and of itself has multiple hurdles, whether it's the approach, whether it's the landing area, whether it's the legality. Um, it's just trying to remove those things, put people that are in a learning in a very early stage of their base jumping careers to, you know, take away some of those hurdles and make them focus on the actual brass tacks of jumping rather than, you know, how, you know, is it a three hour approach? Uh, am I having to hit the ground running? You know, if you take away all those things, people actually have a chance to learn how to do a, a good terminal exit, how to, you know, make a good decision when you need to pull uh, canopy pattern in the terminal, how a slider up parachute opens. You know, a lot of American jumpers really don't know what's going on, you know, after their hand leaves the pilot chute. Um, so let's talk uh, early on then, uh, since it seems like we're delving into the next part of this, which is what should people uh, be ready for or what should they have developed before they come to you to take your course? What kind of skills are you looking for? Um, I mean, this starts even at before our bridge courses, but solid canopy work. Um, we do, our minimum is 200 jumps, but uh, what we're really looking for in those 200 jumps, or <laughs> preferably more, is having a full grasp of canopy flight. Like it's, that's, we see really big payoffs with people that do our bridge courses and our Brazil courses with uh, a little bit of a crew background. Helps a lot, like at least here at Skydive Elsinore, uh, we have a massive crew community. They're super open and welcoming. They have pup they hold pup camps all the time. And we've had a couple students go through just a basic crew pup camp. It costs basically nothing. And you get a full grasp of what your parachute's capable of doing. The, uh, the canopies are quite similar. Uh, and you're really learning what you can do up high and what you can do down low. That's going to really save your butt in the base environment. So if uh, somebody can't make it to Elsinore to take, uh, you know, some crew instruction and you've got somebody maybe across the country that's gearing up for one of your courses, what would you recommend there? Um, definitely getting their hands on a seven cell. Uh, I mean, even some of your basic skydiving seven cells are really better than, than getting into a more high performance semi-elliptical canopy. Um, learning how that parachute flies, learning what each one of your riser groups does, fronts and rears, uh, learning how to make flat turns, uh, being able to have, have a more a less kind of skydive drop zone mentality when it comes to canopy landings to like, instead of just thinking of your world as a pattern, kind of seeing what your parachute can do at, at low speeds down low uh, is really gonna pay off big time. Nice. And I'll just add in a quick recommendation. If anyone's working on canopy work, I highly recommend that you get Brian Germain's book, A Parachute and Its Pilot. If you're an intro skydiver, or even if you're working on advanced level stuff, he goes through a lot of the fundamental dynamics that are applicable in every parachute. So like when you get to a Scotty Bob and he starts talking at you about angle of attack and, you know, trim and all of this, you already have like a basic understanding of how he's trying to transmit knowledge to you. So highly recommend that book, Parachute and its Pilot by Brian Germain. Um, going forward, Scotty, like, okay, we've got canopy work. What are some other things that you'd like to see people develop in the skydiving world before they get to you in the base world? 
uh rigging knowledge is an absolute is a giant one we've literally had people show up to courses already <laughs> i won't name names it's cool uh we helped them out a bunch but people literally showing up to courses and they've never taken a canopy off risers never ne had no idea how to put their slider on um had no idea how to configure slider up and that's kind of one of the the bigger ones going from a bridge centric progression in the u.s and moving on to a terminal world if you in general just don't know how to how these things operate that's a good thing to kind of get your your hands on before you even end up end up at one of these courses uh, okay and i've got a, we do a lot go ahead sorry oh yeah i was gonna say like i want to jump in and see if you guys agree with this because it's something i've been trying to like kind of push and I, I think there's a basic mentality that like uh riggers are this pedestal person in our sport and you know as you're coming up you got 200 jumps you're looking at base jumping like oh that's just not attainable or it's not like applicable to me but like if you really think about it like being a base rigger you are operating in a riskier environment like making harder like decisions with your gear than would most riggers like you know you rig a reserve okay that's going to be opened like under duress maybe you know a thousand feet over the ground clear of hazards okay like first base pack job you're opening that thing next to hard objects 200 feet over the ground so like let me let me hear your opinions here like should we be like kind of expecting even more out of base jumpers than we would out of riggers i was gonna say that like you know if you were to take a beginner base jumper or even an advanced base jumper and give them uh you know like a rating system like let's say they were like video game characters right and you had like 20 points for per character and i would definitely put you know body flying skills canopy flying skills and rigor skills those would be like the three main you know categories and you were able to like you know level up i would say that like when the three of us got involved in base jumping you know most of the old timers were like a level 10 at rigging and as the years have progressed those levels have progressively gotten worse and worse and i don't know what it is like uh, you know people taking courses uh, too early not really like the, the culture hasn't really caught up with that as much but uh scotty yeah what, what what do you think like how are people going to change that how is that culture going to be changed uh i mean it, especially at our courses that's a good chunk of our first and second day even before the first day is just inspecting gear and getting a good, if we have the, you know, the privilege of having some of our students that are local, uh, we do that at the drop zone well before the course. And I think that's kind of a must that is if your expectation is to just be handed a parachute system and go jump off a bridge without really getting a full idea of how it goes, that's, it's, you're going to be sorely awakened. <laughs> uh, especially if you show up at our course, you're, you're going to have to learn, or at least have a willingness to learn this stuff because uh, especially when you swip, swap over to the slider up environment there's like bait that basic rigging stuff becomes you know very like, life and death crucial because if you don't even know where your brake lines go where you're you know as when you're hooking up your rig for your first time doing your first slider up jump then those are usually giant red flags for me <laughs> for julia and i going like holy cow you, you really did not prepare at all to get here <laughs> 
also you'd be terrified if you were up there not knowing any of that like i mean if if you, the first time you ever hooked any of this stuff up was like the jump right before you like hucked off a cliff you'd be taking a lot of that stuff on faith and credit you know like I hope this works. I hope that's like fold makes sense. Like, I hope that I didn't mess that up. Like, man, that would be just nerve wracking. That's the transition really from, from what I like the big transition, the more mental transition. You know, I think a lot of people have from going from skydiving to base jumping is that full realization like, Hey, wait a minute. Like I'm responsible for all of this. Like, it's not like my packer or my rigger that my local rigger, like I I'm responsible for all this. And then you're like, aha, you're onto it now. Like you reap what you sow. So oh, it's real. No, you're totally. Real. <laughs> Gear fear is real too, <laughs> man. Like even when I take some time off, like, uh, you know, when I hook up and hook up a new uh, container or something like that, you know, like I know what I'm doing, but man, it sure adds to the nerves. And like, I can't even imagine, you know, like you're jumping for your first uh, couple of jumps off of a cliff and, and you have gear fear behind that definitely pays to do a little bit of research and, you know, even buy your canopy early and throw it out on the ground, pack it, unpack it, uh, inspect all the little seams and, and everything, you know, like get intimately familiar with that piece of gear. Cause fuck, it's the only thing saving your life. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add on to that. Like if you're thinking about base jumping and you're a skydiver that's just starting out, my main piece of advice is don't let people do things for you. Do them. You know, there's nothing in this like system that is not comprehensible or workable f- by you. So like, even if it's something complex, like be there when it's happening, like don't just hand your stuff over to somebody and then give them a credit card and grab it back. Like you're not doing yourself a service. So, uh, Scotty, um, moving forward, I got to ask you about this last part of skills that you want developed before you get to the course. <laughs> and this one came out in the pre-interview too. It's I knew that was a will end. to live. <laughs> so can you expand on that? Weird. Yeah. I mean, I, I do. I, I mean, you can chalk a lot of things up or a lot of, uh, actions or decisions or reactions that people have as like just sheer ignorance and that's that's totally cool and that's why you know that's why we're here you know you can you can fix ignorance that's an easy one but what you uh, really can't fix with some people is kind of the the mental battles or uh, things that might be going on in their life and really the whole will to live thing comes from just having a positive outlook on life uh, base jumping should never be an avenue of self-destruction and uh, not to get too dark about it, but I've definitely see, I, I mean, I've even had times in my life where I thought that jumping was kind of an avenue of self-destruction and I chose to make that a bigger priority to fix that problem before I continued to progress in jumping. Uh, I think the mental battles that people go through need, need to take way more priority than uh, a lot of the you know recreational hurdles that we want to get over jumping wise and i think it gets overlooked very often so you're saying um, basically like sound mind before you approach the sport correct and it's, so how are you evaluating that are, are you guys uh going through some kind of uh process for that are you finding it out as you go and what do you recommend for people like should they you know Maybe, uh, like before anyone made a, a, a decision this serious, you'd usually have to see a medical professional. Like they don't let you be a special operator unless 
you go and like get checked out by a therapist. They don't let you do a lot of dangerous stuff uh, in this world without doing that. So what are your recommendations and how are you evaluating uh, people's mental preparedness in this, you know, will to live realm? Yeah, we, we definitely have a benefit of having a lot of local students close to us, but definitely people that we meet right off the bat or, you know, one of my bigger things, if I choose to you know, accept somebody as a student and to work with them on their goals is kind of get to know them a little bit more, just talk to somebody, you know, have a basic conversation where they are in their life, what's going on. And I, I, I'm sure people realize this, but I'm definitely listening to what they're saying and, and kind of taking like, all right, I'm making my own definitely judgments. On, and there's definitely some red flags here that come out here and there. And then I usually, if there's a red flag, I kind of address it immediately and kind of be like, well, do you think this is an issue? You know, do you think when you're standing on the edge of a bridge or on the edge of a cliff, does this, is this going to be in the back of your mind or is the task at hand going to be in the top of your mind? And at least having the conversation before you get to that situation is probably a way bigger way. <laughs> it's way better, more beneficial for me. And it's way more beneficial to the student to at least address those kind of mental health issues before they get there we really we've been fortunate enough not to really have many um but uh, there's definitely some people in in my past and that i've met through jumping that i definitely have had those questions of being like is this person all the way are they invested entirely mentally in what's going on at the time you know i can speak from personal experience uh, i've had some dark days where i was chronically ill and uh you know, I wouldn't say that I was self-destructive per se, but I think that even when you're having some really difficult times, it's and, and what we can distill this whole conversation down to would be is like, how often are you just saying fuck it and hucking it? You know, like if you just say fuck it, then, you know, you're not relying on your training. Your eyes are closed to any good decision making. So, so yeah, man, like, uh, you know, just... I think maybe people listening to this can be like, all right, how often am I, am I saying like, ah, just fuck it. You know, like it's a, it's a pretty easy metric right there. So Scotty, what, uh, can you give us a characterization? What does it look like? What's the difference between somebody jumping that has a will to live and somebody that does not have a will to live? Is there a way that you could, you know, give us kind of a, a narrative on what that <laughs> looks like, how that, would appear uh, i mean again shoot going back to that ignorance side of things i've met quite a few people that just don't know uh about that when they do certain things a certain way that it's uh, that it's going to potentially hurt or kill them uh, but when you really kind of start questioning people's thought processes when they're presented a with different avenues you know, not even really expensive avenues. If you take money out of the equation, you just kind of present a different way of going about something. And they continue to make that decision, that extremely way riskier decision to get their goal, you know, whatever their goal that they put on a pedestal, you know, as fast as humanly possible. That's when you kind of go like, okay, <laughs> then you're, then it's really just about doing things the way you want to do it and not, you know, not a, a better prescribed method, I guess. So when we're talking prescribed methods, let's uh, expand out a little bit. And let me ask you, what do you think of the progression in general in skydiving and base jumping? I mean, in general, I think it's gotten better over the few years. Uh, definitely in the last 10 years, it's, it's gotten way better. 
the side and people are always like, oh, there's more people getting into base jumping and things are sketchy and the jumpers don't know what's going on. It's kind of the typical like back in my day type shit. Uh, but in general, I think it's actually gotten better. Um, I'd use Lauterbrunnen as a perfect example. Like Lauterbrunnen used to be fucking scary. Like every load you went on in like 2010 to like 2013, you saw something crazy fucking, not every load, but like every trip you saw someone almost die or you did see somebody die. And being in a place like Lauterbrunnen and we're seeing that many jumps, it really kind of makes you scratch your head and go like, damn. But I'd say uh, younger base jumpers in general have a little bit more fear which is a good thing because there's more knowledge out there. Um, but that being said, it's like, who's, you know, how is that fear being addressed? And people still have that drive to get to, you know, wingsuit base jumping or, you know, X, Y, and Z, whatever their progression goals are, but uh, how you're addressing that fear, not just as an instructor or a mentor um, or just a friend is, that seems to be kind of the battle these days. Like, how do you give people the proper avenues to get to where they want to get. Um, that's the current battle, I would say. Without uh, without unnecessary fear, getting them to the goals that you that they're yeah, give, driving for, giving them the right fear that doesn't you know make them turn off completely, or uh, at the same time make them fully realize that that mistake is not new. <laughs> it's been done numerous times. I think like you there's I guess another question coming up but you know with my progression I the reason I progressed you know the way I did is because I didn't have anybody around me that was you know I started in rural North Carolina there was like four base jumpers out there like we all were kind of figuring it out completely on our own and in ignorance you have no fear like you're just you're surrounded by the three guys that are making bad decisions you know the same bad decisions around you and you you know, you, that's how you learn. But when you're introduced to fear from an outside source, something that you haven't personally seen, you have two options. You can either accept that, take it under consideration and modify your decisions, or you can blindly ignore it and be like, well, that guy is, that guy isn't me and he doesn't understand me. And, uh, that's not going to be me. I'm better than that. And uh, that's really where we're at these days is that either the acceptance of fear or the denial of fear and that's kind of, again, goes back to the heart of instruction is how do you at least make people accept fear rather than deny it and then blindly walk into any situation completely unprepared? How would you base your own fear now? I know it's not something that's always necessarily linear, but uh, as someone who's experienced as you, would you say that your fear, where is your fear in, in your progression I mean, my fear now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm about to have a kid, so that really that stepped it up a couple notches. But um, yeah, I mean, my fear now is really leaving leaving a kid behind without a dad. Um, when I'm personally jumping, it's I, I've dialed some of my decisions back down. Um, not just to set an example for students, but also the realization that you know if I get hurt or killed, it's directly impacting another human's life that it's not even here yet so that's i like that mentality we've we've all seen (laughs) this stuff happen already and it's just it's not something that it's just horrible you know so right there scotty you're tying your fear back to an underlying value you're saying like okay what am i most afraid of leaving this kid behind 
And so all my decision-making is going to expand outward from that central value. Uh, do you find that uh, people that are making the worst mistakes in our sport just are you know, lacking that underlying value? Like they just don't give a fuck and you're like, okay, well, I got to get you to give a fuck about something. Otherwise, like your fear isn't going to ever turn on because you don't give a fuck. I mean, I've been there. I, I've not given tons of fucks for years, man. <laughs> like it, I definitely think the sketchier years of my base jumping progression and, and life have been surrounded by the years of not giving a fuck. So I agree with you entirely. But uh, I mean, I'm definitely also not promoting that every base jumper go out there and have a kid. <laughs> like that's not the solution either. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, like you don't have to do that to give a fuck. Like it's, it's definitely... I think a lot of, especially with Jimmy Poucher, who's you know a hero of mine for sure, is you know it it can be just the friends that you have around you and and reminding them constantly and daily that that you know you care about them and that not only do their decisions you're not your decision that you're making right now on the edge of a cliff don't just impact you they impact people around the world that can, and it motivates you to really get in touch with people be be more outgoing like get to actually love the community for what it is and it that actually makes you want to give a fuck growing that family you know it doesn't need to be biological to uh you know to leave some pretty deep scars behind when you're gone yeah, you know one thing i was going to say too that uh a motivation that for me earlier was uh you know before having a kid and now having another very soon is uh man it just keeps getting better you know the suits are getting better uh the more jumps you make, like, you know, the less, the, the better you feel, the more friends you develop, the more the network grows, the more different interesting places you get to go and jump. I mean, it just keeps getting better and better. W would you guys agree? Totally agree. Yeah, without a doubt, man. <laughs> without a doubt. Yeah. And actually, that leads into the next question for Scotty, which is, what do you think of uh, where the culture is going with the increase in technology and the ease with which somebody can just pay for these things and you know have a an f1 car you know equivalent in the skydiving and base world yeah i mean if we're just talking about you know technology in general getting better and how it's affecting progress um the suits are way easier to fly for sure um but it's this still the same decision making battles that we've been dealing with for years uh, I think the, the rush, all the rage nowadays is to get into the largest surface area wingsuit possible, uh, that we've seen that issue, um, because not only are they, they're big, they're easier to pull, the start arcs are great, like why wouldn't I just jump right into that thing? And I just go right back to uh, a conversation that I heard in Romsdal, Norway in around 2011. Uh, I was in a room with Robbie Pechnik and Luca uh, and Tom Eric Hyman. And I remember Robbie talking about when Tony suits were becoming all the rage and larger surface area, higher, you know, lower stall speed. I mean, like, yeah, these things start really fast. But, you know, when people learn how to fly slow and learn how that flying slow in a wingsuit is, uh, is, you know, you can get away with it. The second they start flying terrain, they're all going to hit the ground. And he said that in 2011. And I remember hearing him say that and go like, huh, I should probably remember that because that was really when Tony's were starting to become a big deal. And now when we're, you know, nowadays, flash forward a decade or more, uh, 
that progression standpoint seems to be the bigger, the, the realization is that once you've developed that decision-making skills from either two-piece tracking or flying, uh, not the biggest wingsuit on the market, until you've developed those decision-making skills, then slapping a, you know, a bigger wingsuit on is not going to make you a better wingsuiter. It's just going to make you a really bad decision maker. You're, you're going to put yourselves in way more committing environments. You're going to be jumping, jumping shorter rock drops with longer, with longer glides. And that serious lack of time in the sport that you skipped right over is what's eventually going to get you. Uh, it's, and it's not even a new phenomenon. It's a, a phenomenon that's been going on for years. And uh, as safe as we make, as safe and as good as we make the suits, we're only as good as the brain between our two ears. Like, so it sounds like you're saying if you're just using the suit to fly rather than flying the suit, then you're really not setting yourself up for a sustainable long career. You're just superficially getting into a slot like right now that like kind of might look good, but eventually is going to catch up with you. And if your goal is to be a, a decent or an excellent wingsuiter, then you're not serving yourself. Am I kind of characterizing that correctly? Yeah, for sure. And the the bigger chain or the bigger caveat is that well why can't i just supplement these my lack of or my box checking mentality in the other avenues of base jumping with just a lot of skydive training and then you know i can just rattle off quite a few names jonathan flores um you know jeff nebelkoff i mean that mentality eventually if you if you don't treat base jumping as a sport in and of itself and skip right over those progression paths and don't develop that good decision-making. The skydive training is only, is actually probably what's going to get you killed. Like you're going to have way too much confidence in the suit and you're, it's not going to go well. Yeah. Well, that leads right into the next thing. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say that your, uh, your rating, like I was talking about earlier of your piloting skills will diminish your, uh, decision-making abilities for sure. Like, uh, and there's a, there's a, I think there's also a level of, uh, cognitive load that we can all handle. And when you're new to the base environment, you're, you're tapping right into all of that, you know, like you're got tunnel vision and just making simple decisions, you know, starts to leave you. And, um, those skills of flying in the skydiving environment are going to go right out the window. It's uh, it's being in the mountains, having your feet right on that exit point that really helped develop those skills for years and years. Um, you know, there's like uh, something that I wanted to ask you about too, was like your, um, what do you, what do you think? Cause there seems to be like a, quite a big niche of, uh, people flying one piece tracking suits that, how do you see that fitting into this progression and, and students coming up? Uh, I'm, you know, I, I think they're great. They're great tools. They're great toys. Like they're, they're awesome. They're super fun. I've been having a blast kind of figuring, figuring the sausage and the ETMD out. Um, once it gets as a tool for progression, uh, if somebody's goal in my, in, is to be in a wingsuit in the mountains, then getting that, per, whether you get that progression in a two piece or in like a small one piece, that's, that's all right too. I would highly recommend starting with a two piece. Um, but having kind of that progression start in the smallest surface area thing on your body is, is a better route. And, uh, it forces you to stay to safer objects 
that's the reality. Um, we have to just think we've seen lately that with once people start putting one pieces on, you know, and then they put one or two seasons on them, they're just going to start taking them to more committing places. And as long as you're coming at that progression with that thing in mind, like, hey, I'm flying basically a shitty wingsuit and you're staying to more safer objects, that's great. That's a good part of your progression. That's fine. Um, but getting that background and decision-making on your way to getting in a wingsuit can totally happen in a two-piece. Like You can totally go from two-piece tracking to wingsuit base jumping like most people have done over the years. Uh, I don't think it's necessary to throw one piece on, but they're definitely fun, for sure. Yeah, they are, they are fun, for sure. So uh, moving back into uh, some of the cultural aspects, uh, how would you like to see our culture shift in the next generation? And how uh, is your education during this progression uh, with you know smaller wing seats and developing your course? Uh, how are you trying to accomplish that? Um, yeah, I guess now you're just talking about it, I wanted to add one more thing on there, but... Um setting real realistic expectations on on not just the time but the amount of jumps that people need to do before they they even think that they're ready to go on to the next step uh, base jumping should be a uh, it's a lifetime of knowledge and people are trying to pack this stuff into like one or two seasons and it's uh, people definitely are just skydiving way more that's awesome people are you know going on and getting jumps on more repeatable objects, that's great. But the real limiting factor is time. Like you don't, like having put, making that timeline stretch out a little bit before you go like, okay, now I wanna, you know, put an ATC on and go make my first wingsuit base jump or put a freak on and go do my first wingsuit base jump. Like that realistically should not be, that's not a one year, that's not a two year. That's used for a lot of people. It's not even a three year goal, like from when you start base jumping, it's, it should be a multi-year process to even get to that point. Um, so making sure people have realistic expectations, I think, is would be a really good one. And then just to uh, jump in real quick on that one particular topic, do you think that there is a, kind of a pay-for-play culture shift that's kind of fighting that mentality? Because I've heard you say that uh, term before. I'm just kind of wondering if uh, that is the antithesis to the shift that you're trying to go for. Uh, I think one of the goal, like what I would like to see that our course does not become is a box checking thing on somebody's step towards, you know, greatness. It's not like, Hey, yeah, I did this. And now that means I can do this. It's, it should be a, a window towards, you know, to future <laughs> to elongate your lifespan in the sport. Uh, yeah, I mean, those things are definitely happening. I hope that, you know, I would really try to avoid our course becoming that or being that. Um, but yeah, people are, I would see that there are some people out there that want to just be told that they want to be told that what the way they're doing things or the way their expectations are set up is totally fine. And this is the way to do it. Just pay me, you know, that's, I would rather that not become reality. Because a lot of the things that we were talking about earlier, the um, you know having a more rounded mind mindset before you get into a super committing sport like wingsuit base jumping, it's a prerequisite, and and just glossing over that and paying somebody to get you there is not the way to do it. 
Though it sounds like you're saying it's not just paying somebody to get you there, but it's more like paying somebody to validate you or paying them for the confidence so that you can make bad decisions rather than paying you, Scotty Bob, for educating them. <laughs> yeah, that's it's it's a fine line when you operate in that when you're when, for Julia and I as well starting courses. It's like we know what people's goals are and what they want to do. It's literally written all over people's faces. I mean. Don't get me wrong, wingsuit base jumping is awesome. I love it. But uh, making sure people are fully aware of the risks of the stuff they're doing and that there is an avenue and there is an opportunity to do it in a stretched out timeline uh, with more experience and then also getting to enjoy base jumping for the best parts of it, which is travel and people. Like you get to meet more people, you're not turning yourself into a loner. You know, you're getting to travel the world you go see some awesome places and you're doing it in a way more comforting or at least a way more, way less committed environment. That's, that's really the goal. Can you summarize your own progression in the sport from someone who was on many people's sort of short list to go in and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I started base jumping in, on the East coast of the United States uh, where we had, uh, not a lot of jumpers and not a lot of experienced jumpers and definitely not a lot of experienced jumpers that wanted to give up information or, or be mentors. Uh, so it was kind of a lot of on my own soloing. Uh, I definitely had some friends I jumped with, but a lot of my first 400 base jumps were solos. Um, and then going back to the idea of that ignorance is just, ignorance is the worst. Like you, if you don't have somebody around you to, offer up information or offer you a different way of doing things. You're just going to do whatever's put in front of you. So, um, I think that's kind of the way I look at instruction is at least putting the information in someone's face and let at the, in the end of the day, it's still base jumping. People are going to make whatever calls they do. And, uh, at, that's totally fine. But, uh, a lot of the decision, the horrible decisions that I made progression wise came from the fact that I had no information in front of me. So what that sounds like to me is that like being the lone wolf on your base progression is uh, kind of a bad move. I mean, we all like to go do some solos. Like I know I love to go do a solo, but like what you're saying is that, you know, at the beginning and like, or maybe even key moments in your progression shouldn't be solo. Are you saying that they need to be with an instructor or they should just need to be with people they trust or? Yeah, that's I tell people all at, on all our courses like having a a progression buddy is probably even more important than than having an instructor telling you exactly what to do and how to jump and when to jump. Like that's at, at the end of the day, that's that's why we're here is to at least give good information. But if you have someone that's an equal to you, you know your breast bro that you know is around the same you know same time frame progression wise as you, th that's way more important than always having an instructor around you. Yeah, uh, you keep each you keep each other in check, and you at least don't have that instructor student, you know, mental thing going on. You have you consider yourselves as equals, and you at least start having conversations that you know, and you started off with an equal mindset, and that's that's giant for me. It was Ian Mitchard. Shout out to Ian Mitchard. What up, bro? <laughs> Shout out, Ian. <laughs> you know, I was, I'm thinking about to some of the. Let's thinking back to some of those times that we spent together in Chamonix and. Uh, I, can you remember some of those solo rollers that came through? It was it kind of all put like, you know, the hair on the back of our necks to stand up a little bit, didn't it? Like, 
uh, yeah, those people coming into scary town by themselves. And... Scary out is most of them aren't here anymore. So that's, yeah. uh, yeah. man, we could write a book about the Chamonix like 2012 to, you know, 20, 2016, 2016 years. You yeah. could write a whole book about those years. Yeah. <laughs> so good. I wanted to ask you, um, as far as the progression, cause I think this is a big deal and I think it's played, um, I, I think you've been a big part of this too. Um, and not necessarily in a negative way. Um, but what do you think about videos and social media and how does that change people's decisions and yeah I, it's uh, i've had an ongoing love hate battle with social media ever since i've really kind of got into it and it's um nowadays as it gets even more prevalent and it, it's, it's pretty cr- I don't want to sound too much like an old guy these days, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, the shit's deadly for sure. And when you put base jumping into that mix and you get that ego boost from showing people what you're doing and how badass is this and how liberating and how, how inspirational, like I, just so everybody knows, there's really nothing inspirational in my opinion about jumping a wingsuit off a cliff. Like <laughs> it's not inspirational in my opinion. Like you're doing something incredibly selfish and taking entire sheer joy out, you know, for yourself. And la- if you're doing it right, you're doing it entirely for yourself and you're landing on the ground and being like, fuck yeah, that was red. Let's pack it up and go do it again. That's, that's, that's great as long as you look at it from that mindset. But the second you start seeing yourself as this kind of alter ego, inspirational figure, it really starts screwing your head up. Uh, you know, for I, my, I totally point it back at myself. Like when you start seeing views going up and you even have companies giving you like, Hey man, you got like a million views on this video. That's sick. And you're like, yeah. And then you, what's even more fucked up is when you have people come at you and tell you, you're the reason why I got into base showing. Cause I saw your videos. And then that person goes in that really kind of messes with your psyche quite a bit. And that's happened to me quite a few times. And I think for me now, the social media side is really, I guess on the personal side, is just to show you know, that you can survive through this whole journey and <laughs> you can come out the other end a sane person, but, or a relatively sane person. <laughs> but let's try to, to like eliminate, try to eliminate ego from your actual physical act of jumping as much as possible. Uh, that's you can be proud of who you are and what you're doing but it, you know if the point or goal of you being on that cliff or you in that wingsuit wherever it is is to show off and you know impress people for this skill or this skill or this skill then you probably are there for the wrong reasons at the end of the day the best part of those videos is when you're at the exit point at the landing area chatting with your buddies <laughs> those are the parts of those videos sure. that we're going to be looking back for <laughs> Yeah, no doubt, man. Like those high fives. I, w- I wish that I had like kept all of those as a compilation, just all of the lands and then like the high five slaps. I'd have like thousands of those. It'd be just such an incredible little like. <laughs> I can span. I can actually go back through my video catalog and you can kind of treat the years where I was probably going the most hardcore wingsuiting. You can tell because like my camera turns on about seven seconds before exit and it turns off when i'm either under canopy or on the ground but mm, it's interesting my b my b-roll files like of all my like high fives hand slaps you know going around town doing stuff is usually 
like before that era. And then the more of it is like probably after 2016, I have way more of that now, but those years right in the middle there, like the 2012 to 2016, 2017 years, those are the ones that it's like, it's, there's no B-roll, like very little. Like, Interesting. Sorry, Matt, I'm hogging the questions here, but I want to ask something that I was wanted to, to, to go on was like, you know, as, as, you know, sort of, Going off of my original question is like you were on everyone's or most people's short list. Um, and out of a group of those people, you know, you survived. Um, what, what do you think? Was it luck? Was it skill? Was it a combination of the two? What, what do you think carried you through that? Uh, definitely luck. <laughs> 100% luck. Uh, I maybe also that will to live thing we were talking about earlier. Um, I definitely did even in the middle of all that stuff, walk down off a few jumps. Um, not trying to make that like on a pedestal or anything, but it's in general, it's mostly luck to be honest. Uh, it's even most of the guys that were jumping, you know, low, you, you know, that crew and sham, like that's a lot of the guys, some of the guys are still there and still jumping, still active, but you're like, eh. there's not one of us that still doesn't remember those, those summers in sham and going like, holy shit. <laughs> a, how is, how was not that not banned way sooner or more often? And then two, like, how do we get back there and make it legal again? <laughs> so, it's the double-edged sword. You're like, how is this legal? And holy shit, was that fun? Oh my God. Well, uh, yeah. speaking of people that have some luck and some people that ran out of some luck, I'd like to ask you about the people that you saw as having to get lucky before they even left and told them so. Like, to put a more direct point on it, I know three people off the top of my head that you literally said, hey, man, if you do the same thing that you did on that last jump, you're not going to make it. Please don't do this. Like, what's it like to be seeing somebody make a decision like that and know that they have to get lucky in order to make it through? I mean, it, it sucks at the end of the day, watching anybody go in or, or dealing with that. You know, it's really, it does suck. But at the end of the day, you can only just say things. You can just talk and try to remind somebody that, that base jumping is not worth dying over and people are going to make their own decisions it's kind of one of the more beautiful things about the sport though is that it is entirely responsible on the individual and uh, you can only say so much until you literally be like man i sound like a complete asshole right now because i'm you know telling this person they're going to die all the time but that stuff weighs on me too like i i, th I think about what i'm saying before i say it i think a lot more now than i used to um but uh, as you get older in the sport, you kind of, you still see the same mistakes being made over and over again. And, you know, what can you do? Just set the example and try to give people good information. So if I can delve into this a little bit more, what do you think the disconnect was? Because I know that there's a disconnect in a lot of us when somebody says like, hey man, you're going to die. And usually what they're talking about is like, you're going to die you're going to die eventually if you keep doing what you're doing. But like in some of these cases, you're like, no, dude, like you can't, you can't actually do what you just said that you're going to do. Like physics does not support that. Like, what do you think the disconnect is between, you know, you transmitting that information, trying to educate somebody and, and them just like 
you know, basically not caring. Uh, I mean, it's personal ego for sure. And then it also can be like the way I, pre you know, present that information. I, again, go, <laughs> I think you were personal witness to a couple times where I had that conversation with certain individuals and maybe came off like a complete douchebag, but <laughs> well, but, I, I was there definitely for a couple of those where somebody was planning on doing something outrageously stupid and you like basically just snapped them off and you're like, no, you cannot do that. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, you know, and that was, that's a hard uh, one for people to like accept, especially when they're not under duress. Like I think in those cases, like you definitely approach them as though they were like under duress, like in the situation that was about to like occur, like, and they were like about to lose their lives. But like that is kind of different than the situation I'm talking about. I'm like talking about more like the Jared Garnett's where like you're on the exit point with them and you're like, no, dude, you don't get it. Like that last one, I saw that happen. Like you were lucky to have gotten, I don't know. Like I, I'm an experienced expert at this and I cannot explain how you did not die on the last one. And so like this one, please, for the love of God, do not do that again. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, getting better, getting, becoming a better communicator really is, that's, that's kind of the goal at least. But I mean, in Jared Garnett's case, like, uh, dude, I don't think, I mean, he had so many people had said something and in the same case as Mehmet, <laughs> same exit point, actually. Um, so many people had said the exact same things to this person over and over and over again. And yet they chose not to listen. Uh, I don't know if there's really any better ways of communicating than, than that. Um, I don't or know maybe what... there's a, a perspective that you could give on how to avoid being that person. Like, what's the, what's the deal? Like, I mean, you could always just come up on the next one, you know, or take a break or something. What's the, what's the kryptonite here? I mean, jumpers from day one having an open mind to criticism. That's really, and that really starts when they start base jump, or really when you start skydiving is that if you, if you accept that role as kind of like the rogue or the rule breaker or the, like, I'm doing things different because I do things differently, that's usually a big indicator of problems. Not that Jared really was doing that. But when you put yourself as, as in this juxtaposed position as like, I'm doing this for X, Y, and Z and nothing anybody else tells me around me or multiple people around me have told me that I shouldn't do it, that should be a giant red flag warning of like, hey, maybe these people aren't all assholes. Maybe they're actually trying to give me good information or at least maybe trying to save my life. Um, yeah. You know, like maybe even just to the, some people that are listening to this who even started base jumping yet, and, you know, you're going to hear, like, I'm thinking, I'm listening to Scotty right now thinking about, you know, how many times I was a dick too and how, like, I was so unequipped to come into some of those, those conversations and how much emotion was around it. You know, it's, uh, it's difficult. And uh, were we all at that, were we all at Bravant when Jared went in? I would, yeah. Okay. I remember exactly what Matt said. That's pretty much what I said. So yeah, I asked him if he knew where the crazy. landing area was. Yeah. Right before you know, before I heard the impact, it was like you know there was something written on his body language that was just something was not right, and uh, yeah, that was yeah. that was a difficult one. 
Yeah. That was a, that was definitely a strange one. So moving on then from people dying, which we always come to you in this podcast. Um, we also want to know from you, are you afraid of dying? And more specifically, are you afraid of dying while base jumping? Uh, I, I would actually say my current, my real biggest fear of dying is electrocution. Just so everybody knows that. I don't know. I, it's a very strange childhood fear. <laughs> I don't know why. If anybody has ever seen me try to jump a car, it's really embarrassing because I am deathly afraid of it. I'm like, this thing's going to kill me. And like, I hate it. So now that you all know, don't come at me with fucking... Um, yeah, I, I think anybody who, anybody who says they're not, that base jump says they're not afraid of dying base jumping is either psychotic or, or they're a bold-faced liar. Like, it's, that fear should be the forefront of your thought, going back to that whole will to live thing. If, if it's not, uh, there's something else going on. Uh, I think even in, going back to those shamany years we were talking about, low like, uh, there was definitely a kind of a mentality in in some of the jumpers going on there that um, I would say a more callous nature to to some of the most technical flying that we've probably done ever. Um, it's at least for the majority for me, my, like it's just speaking for myself. Definitely the most calculated in flying I have ever done was definitely in those summers. Uh, and just looking at some of the other jumpers on the cliff up there going like, man, you guys seem really flipping about this. <laughs> like, uh, I don't, at the time I was kind of laughing about it, but looking back on it, I'm like, damn, we were kind of stupid. Uh, it's having a little bit more of a serious underlying, you can be happy. You can be totally like, you don't have to be scared shitless on a cliff and shaking your boots. But at the same time, like not having a full grasp of the, of the reality of the situation when you go off to do certain things like this is, uh, it shows. Um, so it's somewhere in the middle. It's, it's a balance of controlling the fear, but also, uh, not be <laughs> not controlling it so much that you are, uh, obviously not taking things into consideration it's somewhere right in the middle. And for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm especially now more than ever, uh, like the worst thing I could think about in my life really is other than electrocution is, dying in a base jump like everybody thought it would be by now we've talked a lot about lessons from your past uh can you summarize a few you'd like to leave behind or that are the strongest in your mind um definitely be open-minded in the sport uh some of the uh, be a well-rounded jumper that's probably the biggest i can't tell you how many times i've leaned on you know, aerial skills from jumping at the, you know, doing triple gainers at the bridge, you know, for my wingsuiting. And uh, you're always going to put in the base jumping world, you're always going to find yourself in a, in a situation that is brand new or pretty uniquely new. So if you only surround yourself with uh, kind of narrow minded, focused people that are only interested in one thing or constant self gratification, then you're, you're going to find yourself in a very bad environment. You can't just tell yourself, I'm not going to be there because you're going to be there. Uh, and the only answer to that is to be open-minded and be well-rounded. Um, uh, also, having not being a loner in the sport, that's a big one. Uh, kind of we talked about it before, but have a buddy with you that's, that's kind of around the same progression path and the same time frame. 
there's somebody that you can bounce ideas off of, somebody that you can talk about, you know, your ex-girlfriend you just broke up with and not just keeping like a mental health check on you, but also like a, a realistic physical jumping aspect. Like, you know, it, having somebody there that gives a shit about you is, is important. So you don't make a really dumb decision just because you're all alone and you think the world's against you. Um, and then, yeah, definitely learning how to say no. <laughs> having, a, having an off switch is, uh, is really important for, for me. Uh, I've had some of my favorite days of jumping, even in Chamonix was, you know, like people are running pack, rushing pack jobs and rushing to gondolas to get, you know, to get three in or two in before 10. And you're just like, I, some of the best days I had were like doing one in the morning at Brabant and then going to the cafe and having an omelet. Like that was amazing. <laughs> I had a great day. <laughs> I wonder if yeah. I could ask you more about the first one you mentioned, uh, about people seeking constant personal satisfaction and removing yourself from from groups of people like that do you have a moment or a story that you can recall from your personal life where you did that yeah i mean i hate to throw it under the bus but definitely some of the base jumping comps that went out there uh definitely a couple a couple experiences at turkey boogies where you, you saw people just doing total one-upsmanships and, uh, and again, the base jumping comps, some of them in the past, I got kind of a toxic mentality about a lot of them. Cause you really kind of looked around at everybody that was there and you're like, wow, everybody's here just so they can post about it. Like that's, <laughs> that's really shitty. Um, even when I was there, I'm like, man, I should be probably like re remembering that even event organizers was like, are you guys making sure you're hashtagging this post? And you're like, who the fuck cares about that? <laughs> like, why, who the, why should I give a shit about what hashtag I'm putting on my post right now? I'm about to go do something really stupid that I'm barely, you know, that I'm basically not getting paid to do. Like, what, what, what does a hashtag have to do with that? Um, I think now with the, the social media aspect of it, that's even less so if you take like a professional base jumper mindset out of it even when somebody's trying to get into the sport for those reasons that they can show off to the world with what they're doing, I think having a better grasp for themselves, especially in the first three to five years of base jumping, like post less, like, and if you, if you have that mindset out from the start that I'm doing this for me, that'll carry, even when you start getting jobs or going to events or going to, you know, if you do somehow by the stroke of luck or, or sheer ignorance end up in then like a more professional aspect in the sport, whatever that is, you, you'll have that as your base core belief is that I'm doing this because it's fun and I enjoy being in the mountains with my friends. That's, that's really at the end of the day, that's all that matters. And when you have people telling you to do certain things for ulterior motives, it's, you kind of can see through the veil a little bit and be like, huh, interesting. Okay. Gives you a little bit of insight. Well, I'd like to follow up on the end of what you said and ask, is there a simple way that you use to uh, analyze when to say no? Is there a simple answer to the question, when do you say no, Scotty Bob? Um, more, I mean, definitely nowadays, weather. That's a big one. Uh, I've found... I found myself even recently, like if people are on, you get that, you know, American in Europe mentality where you're like, you're on exit point, weather is shitty, but it's like the last week of your trip. I mean, we've all felt that before. Like I can, I can, you know, you may start making marginal judgment calls. 
based on the weather. Uh, and then definitely a headspace. Headspace is a big one. Like if you're not there mentally, then you shouldn't be up there. I've, I've walked down off the cliffs quite a few times because I literally just had so much crap going through my head that I was like, I should not be here. So I walked down. Um, I think that happens to people more than they think. I think people can rationalize stuff going on in their life very easily. And it doesn't have to be somebody just went in in front of you, so you need to take a week-long break. It can be girlfriends. It can be job-related. It can be anything. Um, it really could be anything in your life that's making you kind of start losing that that basic will to live thing. It doesn't mean you're suicidal. It just means that your mind is somewhere else and it's not a hundred percent on the task at hand. And that's what base jumping requires. It takes 100% of your mental capacity to do it successfully. And if you're not there, you should not be there. Well, dang Scotty. Uh, that was a lot to take in that, uh, you've said quite a bit there. And so I'm just going to follow up with our last question. Is there anything else that you'd like to say before we kind of conclude this interview, which has been a blast, man. You're here. You Good stuff. Took a lot of yeah, great topics here and uh, cleaved them off. So anything else like left on your mind to throw down on this podcast? And keep in mind that we'll we'll do this as many times as necessary to get all of the nuggets out of Scotty Bob's head. No, that's uh, it's great. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm uh, stoked to be here and stoked to talk to you. Right on, man. Right Our on. pleasure. So nothing left uh, for the end of this podcast. You're uh, solidly closing out on that last bit then, huh? Uh, uh, I think you were asking about Scotty Bucks, but... Uh... <laughs> oh, yeah, let's go to that one. Oh, man. Oh, God. Yes, please. They're Tell mostly, us about uh, Scotty of... Bucks and your reputation uh, surrounding that currency. With So, like, maybe people don't know about this, but, like, early on in Scotty's career, there was a currency that was completely created in his honor called Scotty Bucks. It had his face all over him. They looked like dollar bills. And I'll let you, I'll let Scotty fill you in on how you got one. I think people that actually made them were worried about counter getting charged with counterfeiting, but they, they, pretty, they, <laughs> they were beautiful. Fairly, they were they very were well made. Yeah. Counterfeiting currency is a serious crime. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think probably you should ask Matt Laz a little bit more about Scotty Bucks. I think he was the reserve chairman for a while. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, I, I would say to any jumpers out there that, you know, I, I did not have a lot of money uh, ever really at all in my base jumping career. And, you know, that seems to be one of the biggest limiting factors that that kind of causes <laughs> causes decision-making, at least progression-wise, to go certain ways. And, uh you know, I spent a lot of time on couches. I spent a lot of time sleeping in my car. And uh, yeah, when you're uh, when you're traveling like that, it's good to uh, at least be a good guest. Like, always leave people with a smile. Don't uh, <laughs> don't uh, don't travel around the world and be a complete jerk because uh, that stuff chases up with you. So you were eventually being catches the, up with squirrel yeah. who had to issue currency on your behalf <laughs> to repay some of the debts yeah. you went from being that guy on the couch to owning a couch like uh yeah i'm on it right now it's yeah like 
It is pretty sweet, man. You, you vagrant base jumpers out there, you too can own a couch. Just that message out there for you. One day, if you save your pennies and do the right thing and live base jumping, you too can own a couch. And until then, hopefully you're uh, you're well-liked enough that you can just crash on other people's and those people will take fake currency that is worth 0.001 cents if you redeem them with squirrel. Uh, on your behalf so that you can you know take a shower <laughs> and get a good night's sleep yeah i would say better more important lessons for living that kind of lifestyle never turn down a shower and never turn down a hot meal when one is offered to you 100 never do it oh man yeah that's the truth okay fucking i love you scotty bob thanks for so much for uh coming on the show and uh giving your perspective hopefully uh it's not the last time that we see you on here Hell yeah, look forward to it. Yeah. Later, guys. Thanks a bunch. Yeah, buddy. Much love. Much love. Man, what a great conversation and a funny place to end. Uh, it's a reminder that I should pull out my Scotty Bucks. If anyone else is holding on to some currency, uh, just remember that uh, Squirrel is still redeeming those, I think, for .001 cents each. So they do have some market value. Lo, what did you think about that conversation? Yeah, it definitely didn't disappoint. Always a good time chatting with Scotty. And, uh, you know, this is something that's really great about podcasting is being able to sit down and have a focused conversation. And uh, it didn't disappoint. You know, he's uh, he's come a long way. He's uh, he's definitely a, a Scotty 2.0 in my mind. And uh, it's, it's really cool to see a close friend, uh, you know, make it through and... Uh, open a different chapter in life and uh, he's he's really ready to give back and uh, I'm excited for where they're taking this course and uh, where their school is going and uh, yeah it was very informative totally and I'm glad that he's teaching now it's taken him a long time you know his uh, former self was just one that taught through hard lessons you know telling people you know the blunt and honest truth on the exit points and now he's like kind of backed that up and he's helping people before they get to the exit point doing stupid shit and i'm, I'm really glad that he's taken that role in our culture yeah absolutely thanks everybody hope you enjoyed this episode also this podcast is co-produced and edited by mark stockwell see you on the next one